0: Hello and welcome back to the official podcast of the Berklee College of Music's Guitar Department. As part of our 2023 Summer Highlight Series, we're revisiting an interview with Professor David Tronzo in which he talks about developing your own musical identity and the fundamentals of practicing. We'd also like to remind you all if you haven't registered for your 2023 fall classes, make sure to do so, and be sure to reach out to the Guitar Department office for any assistance you may
1: need.
2: Hi, I'm David Tronzo, and this is Coffee Talk.
1: How's that? That's great. It's perfect. One take, wonder. (laughs) (laughs) We're off and running, everyone. Um, Okay. (laughs) Hi, everyone. I'm Kim Perlack. I'm the chair of the Guitar Department at Berklee College of Music. And welcome to another episode of our Coffee Talk. Uh, This morning, we have, as usual with us, Cheryl Bailey, assistant chair.
0: Hello, and I do have my mug today. It's official.
1: Fantastic. Guitar department coffee
0: mug. (laughs) We've got Ian Steed, our senior coordinator. Hey, Ian.
2: Hey.
1: (laughs) And our special guest today is Professor David Tronzo. Hey, David.
2: Hey, everybody. Hi, Kim, Cheryl, Ian.
1: Hi, everybody out there. Cheers. (laughs) (laughs) So, David, the first important question is, how do you take your coffee? What are you drinking?
2: this is a homemade latte. It's two shots. It's a two-shot mm. latte. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Mm. Nothing too fancy. But uh, I do a long pour, a couple of shots, um, and then uh, I just steam my milk, froth it up. You know, mm-hmm. it's the, even the sound of it is like signals morning, time to get moving. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'll be half asleep, and I'll hear the whistling of the steam, and I'm like, OK, we're awake. I love that. I have about two of these a day at the most.
1: I love that. Sometimes just one. You know, (laughs) David, you have a reputation of being incredibly centered, um, a master of your work, and um, something recently happened that involved your coffee. (laughs) This story that you told me. (laughs) And I want to break protocol with our general first question and have you tell this story about... um, about the little incident that involved construction and your latte uh, a couple weeks ago <laughs> right before our class <laughs> <laughs> okay. and your reaction to it because I think it's very telling for everyone and and um, gives us all a lesson it's a parable really for the <laughs> okay so
2: my wife and I we live in Newmarket, New Hampshire, in a mill building that is the size the footprint of the building is the size of a of a uh, football field, a U.S. football field, right? So they decided uh, we had had this big job that, you know, was planned for 2020. But even after the COVID lockdown started, they decided to go through with it. And that was the replacement of not only the entire roof of the building, but all of the uh, uh, corbels and soffits, the ends of the beams of this giant building. My ceiling, we have 18-inch square Douglas fir, 200-year-old beams, wood ceiling. So... Anyways, noisy, horrible job, took 227 days of construction while locked down in COVID. Anyways, very stressful, put us through like enormous difficulty. We had to move a couple times out and I had to work other places. So I'm having a like, uh, <laughs> we get up, we know that they're gonna be chopping. They did three sections with us uh, three weeks apart. We knew that they were gonna be doing this section. And when they do this, basically, you know, sunlight comes through your wood ceiling. You know, they pull the old roof up. and So I'm busy over there at like 6.30 in the morning thinking I'm going to get out before these guys start. And I made my latte. I'm sort of half asleep, and I'm standing at the kitchen counter in front of the coffee machine. My latte's on the (laughs) counter, and I'm thinking, God, this is a tasty coffee. I'm so glad I got up early. And they already had started. And I hear this horrible noise, like, grrr, you know, this thing. And this basically, like, a half a pound of sand and dirt went <laughs> not, like, six inches over, not, like, you know, to the left. It went, shh, and it went into the coffee. It went, shh, Jesus. and it was, like, you know, and I looked, and I was, just like, you know, and it was a perfect, I had the foam. It was, like, it was just, like, unreal. It was, shh. And I, you know, I just was like, ah! and I looked up and there was sunlight coming through. And I, you know, I did this thing like, calm down, you know, like uh, it'd be best for everybody if you don't throw a fit. And I looked to my left and there was the umbrella rack on the other side of the door. And I went, ah, <laughs> and I got an umbrella. <laughs> and I opened the umbrella and I made another coffee. <laughs> And then I got another umbrella and I went up to where my wife was, you know, it's a split level loft. I said, here, you're going to need this.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You see, like, there you go, everyone. 2020. There's your guitar story about adapting and and taking care of
2: others. Don't freak out. Just grab an umbrella.
0: Very MacGyver of you.
2: (laughs) You know, I describe myself to my students as the MacGyver of, of music, you know. It's like, solve the problem <laughs> with whatever's at hand, you know?
0: Yeah. For any younger listeners, if you didn't know MacGyver, <laughs> was this TV show with a character that would just, whatever was there was the most inventive, of course, genius.
2: Yeah, they would usually corner him in a convenience store and he'd make a weapon out of tinfoil and a... <laughs> Bubble gum. <laughs> yeah, <and laughs> a straw aerosol yeah. can. Yeah,
0: like one of those... Um, Will you blow the dart through the tube with the poison? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Oh, it's so
1: great. I mean, um, so that kind of does really lead in beautifully to what we generally talk about in the beginning. And um, we we generally want to ask everybody a little bit about Berkeley First Days and you've had a number of first days at Berkeley. You've been, you're a student, you're a guest before you were a teacher, then you're a teacher. Right. And, um, I wonder if you could pick one of those and, uh, or a couple of them, but just kind of tell us a little bit about what was going on for you as a player then. And, um, and what, what it was like when you, when you came.
2: Well, the, you know, I have the most clarity of memory about the first day teaching which was hilarious. Mm-hmm. And also the first day that, um, that I came down to bring a, a, workshop to the, uh, what I then came to learn was the summer program, the guitar sessions. Mm-hmm. So um, I'll start with that actually okay. <laughs> if that's okay. So,
1: yeah.
2: um, Rick, Rick Peckham, who was then the assistant chair, and I had been talking. I I was instructed by Tony chair, a friend of mine in New York, bass player, to uh, call Rick, you know, and uh, we had just moved up here. It was 2002, and I called him immediately, and we talked about the possibility of me working at Berkeley, and um, so he said, well, you know, we don't have anything. We don't, you know, I can't guarantee anything, blah, 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 blah. great to talk. We had this hour-long conversation, and he said, I'll let you know, and In June, he called me back and he said, hey, we have something, Uh, would you be willing to come down and do this like workshop? He said, if you send me some music, I'll put an ensemble together, we'll play together. I said, this is great. Yeah, absolutely. So we set it up in August when Guitar Sessions is. Now, I didn't know anything about Guitar Sessions. And I come down that day for the thing and, you know, I meet him at the guitar office at Uchida and we're walking down Boyce. So he said, well, we got to go to the venue. I said, well, where are we going? He says, oh, it's the Berkeley Performance Center. <laughs> I went, that's kind of large for a workshop. But of course, I now know that guitar sessions, that's where all the clinics and concerts take place. So I'm doing this thing by myself, uh, the workshop part. The concert was going to be with a quartet. And uh, so uh, I guess, what is that, four in the afternoon, we do the clinics, mm-hmm. right? And um, so we have this wonderful workshop. You know, I was even able to get a lot of questions in and stuff like that. And, um, and at the end, uh, Larry Bayonne, who I did not know yet was standing off to the side <laughs> and he walked over to me and he said, hi, I'm Larry. Let's go get a cup of coffee at the Sheridan. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that's when guitar sessions was pretty big. I think we had 602 kids sitting in the, in the mm-hmm. thing, which was kind of large and uh, and it was, you know, hard to, feel like you're reaching all of them, but um, yeah, did, did the best we could do. And uh, we sat down at uh, Sheridan and he said, <laughs> would you like to work here? And I said, absolutely. Right, that was it. Yeah. I, said, I said, absolutely. He says, did you send us anything? I said, no, um, to be honest, I sent things around to other places, but I didn't send one here. He said, why did you do that? I said, because I was sure you guys wouldn't be interested. Mm-hmm. Right? And I never heard back from any other school. Mm. And he said, well, just send us one for our files, he said. <laughs> and then he said, you know, we can't guarantee when you'll start or anything like that. We don't usually hire in the spring semester, in the winter, you know, so this might be a year from now. Would you be willing to work one day a week? Would you be willing to come down for four or three hours a week? You know, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, yes, 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 sure, absolutely. And, but as it turns out, I started in January 2003. That's great. And, uh, it was great. I mean, it really took off. So the first day at school, <laughs> I'm going to tell the story. Like some of my students know this story, and uh, now it's going to be out. Okay. <laughs> so, I was a terrible reader uh, when I was much younger. I was actually a good reader, but then somewhere in there, I don't know what happened. But I, I think I got like f- phobically nervous about you know reading or something. But I became like this really iffy reader, and I I faked it a lot. And I did actually okay in a lot of situations, but um, terrible reader. So I get to school, and back in those days, they had a lab called the 117. Uh, it was a basically a it went along with the proficiency level one for incoming students, and it was just basically you were to use music that used the proficiency material in level one, but it was also a reading lab, and they really wanted to get everybody's you know reading to move up and you could have a mixture of students in this lab that ran from people who did not know the names of the notes of the open strings to people who were already like playing you know some pretty advanced stuff and I walk in and he goes okay so you know you got your lesson thing you got your room uh you got this course you you wrote the slide lab you're going to do in a couple days he said but today this uh, every faculty has to do this lab I said what is it? (laughs) He says it's a reading lab. I said, "Great. Okay, cool." He says, "Go down to room 424 and get these guys going." So I just walked down to room 424 in my classic New York gigging style, opened the door, greeted everybody. said, "Okay, let's get to work," you know, and we <laughs> I just put them to work. Like I just xeroxed some things out of the book and you know, got them going and counted them in and pretended like I was somebody who knew how to read. And uh, I would have done not as well as some of the better students in the class had we put it to the test. But of course, you never let people know what you can't do on the gig. You know what I mean? Right. um, So anyways, we got through the class. Everybody did well. I was even able to help some people with some things, you know, because they're all basic problems like not looking at the range of the thing or not breathing or whatever. And I'm, you know, counseling everybody, relax. You know, the first thing you want to do when your chart lines in front of you is relax. (laughs) It's mind-blowing. I get home that night. It was a Monday night. I get home and I say to my wife, well, I'm going to learn how to read now. (laughs) And I literally got all the books and I stayed one class ahead of this class. And I did that for three semesters. I stayed one, one class ahead. And I learned how to read. I mean, I'm actually now a reader. I can read pretty well, like, you know, all the linear and vertical stuff and bass clef, and, you know, I just said, like, hey, great. So my friends have a joke, you know, like, not having done a lot of school, I did a semester at Berkeley. I did some studying individually with people, but I always felt insecure about that. So every year they would see me, like, in the late part of the summer getting school catalogs. But of course, it's too late if you get them in the summer to apply. So it was this ritual I would do, like, oh, I should have, you know, I should have got this together. Why don't I remember this in February? And I never remembered it in February. And so that all my friends laughed when I uh, came to Berkeley to work. They said, "Oh, finally, he's going back to school." <laughs> 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 so that was, you know, that's my story. Those were my first that. days.
1: I love that story, and I want to um, get into it because I think. Um, I think there's a lot of humility here in the way you're telling the story. And um, I think there are a couple themes. Um, and one is that the way you play the guitar is very different than the way anyone else plays the guitar. I think that's fair to say. I think you're known um, widely as an innovator um, based on your slide technique. And I think um, because of the nature of the way school was for many years until really you came to Berkeley and started your studio and the curriculum that you've written, there wasn't a place for you to study it. So in order to become who you were and who you are as an artist, you had to put your own pedagogy together and teach yourself and seek out people who could push you and help you learn as you did. And and then when you <laughs> came to Berkeley, it's very clear that you just sort of like, okay, I know how this works. I did it as a player and as a performer now I'm going to do it as a professor. And so can you talk a little bit about that, like how you put together your um, rigorous pedagogy for yourself as a student of the guitar and then how you transferred that process to becoming you know, a full professor who's like a you know, award-winning, grant-winning professor?
2: Well, uh, let's see if I can keep this kind of, I guess, brief. So the first thing we should clarify is that <laughs> Um, that I was moved, you know, like almost uh, magnetically by um, certain sounds I was hearing in the guitar world, but I had this really wide range of people I loved. You know, I'm a child of the 60s, so, you know, and I was a teenager in the 70s. I turned 13 and 70, you know, and I was just starting to play in 69. So, you know, like on the radio is the pantheon of the great, rock players and you know i would tune in this radio station from chicago we lived up in rochester new york and after nine at night you could get this jazz station from chicago and it was so heavy it was so great rasan roland kirk you know people i'd never heard of and my brother had all these records you know so it was completely common in our house to go from you know Ornette coleman shape of jazz to come to the grateful dead you know uh, uh Working Man's Dead, and then all of a sudden we're listening to Stravinsky, and then we're listening to Joni Mitchell, and it was just like records. He was a painter, you know. So anyways, you know, I, I was I was clearly magnetized towards the sound of, of uh, sly guitar, and I always wondered, why isn't this in jazz or other music, you know? It's like a, actually a, <laughs> a very stupid idea, actually, really. Like not a well-founded idea, but I was pulled towards it but the truth of it also is that I just chose something nobody was interested in. Nobody was, nobody, nobody thought it was valuable. And I just went, you know, it's like that thing where, you know, they, all the good stuff was taken and I went, why isn't somebody doing something with this? I mean, I literally asked that question at 12 years old, like, how come this isn't on an Ornette Coleman record? Mm. And you know, the answer was like, if you asked anybody that question, they would say, Anything from like, cause it doesn't belong there. <laughs> you know, like, like that's a dumb idea, you know, <laughs> right. They would say that. I mean, you know, my peers for a long time were just like, what are you doing? But I just had this idea. Okay. So, um, what does that do for you? So I'm sitting there and I have this vision in my mind, actually, that's very close to what I'm able to do now with it. But I didn't know that stuff was 10, 20, 30, 40. 50 years away. It's 50 years this year. Mm -hmm. I had no idea. So how do you reverse engineer it, right? Can you imagine how overwhelming, right, that would be in in theory if you wrote it on paper? Oh, you're going to reverse engineer a vision that's 50 years away. It's not overwhelming at all. Everybody starts with the most basic thing that they can manage. That's, in a way, all there is to it. So guess what I started, I started with two notes. I went G, A on the sixth string, G, A. And then I thought, okay, this is maybe a major scale. I knew something about a major scale with G, A, B. Then I put the B on the fifth string and I practiced that and crossing strings with, oh no, what's going on You know my right hand. And I literally started that slow. And something I say to my students is Well, a couple things I say, there's nothing except basics. There's nothing except fundamentals. There is no advanced. When you're looking at advanced, you're looking at somebody who knows the fundamentals so well, they can make anything they want out of it at any moment. Because it's basically the matrix. It's a little set of stuff. You can write it on a three by five card, stick it in your pocket, builds everything. Of course you have to understand strategy, but you know, that's okay. That takes a while, right? As a matter Mm of fact, it's, you know, continually ongoing, collecting strategies, like collecting how music is organized. But the stuff, the stuff is kind of limited. I think you can learn the stuff of Western music, 12 tone, even tempered system in about 20 years at Mm -hmm. the most. I think you can really kind of grasp it. Uh, So anyways, um, I say to students, you know, there's nothing but fundamental, so, you know, really, cherish this stuff, treat it with a lot of respect because the materials are gonna be the most important thing. Materials and techniques. If you make the leap right to creative like expression without understanding materials and techniques, I don't know, I never see a lot of success with that. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: So anyways, uh, the other thing I say to him is, could you be patient enough to play two notes for a month? Mm -hmm. That's what I did and then add a third note.
0: You know, David, that reminds me of a story that um, Tuck Andrus talked about, where you know, he went through some, you know, really, some heavy trauma or something, and he said he just sat in a room, in a hotel room, I guess he was, whatever the situation was, but he was stuck in this place by himself, he was all alone, and he has guitar, and he just played one note for a month. Yep. And, you know, like, but he did that. I mean, and he has, you know, it's that single pointedness that you need. Almost a little bit what we might call OCD or obsessive. Oh, yeah. Right. I mean, I think those are actually excellent qualities when you harness them. But, you know, but the way he described it, I mean, it was so beautiful. His experience with this one note. Mm -hmm. And then he said after that month he felt he could then play other notes and it just opened up like a kaleidoscope of of color from there but uh, you know so that makes me think about that like you just starting with these two notes or just starting slow and and yes i it is so true i mean triads are essential to Everything and what's a seventh chord but two triads stacked right. on top, and then what's a you know, an extended seventh chord is a bunch of triads stacked on top of each other. So, I mean, I remember myself at some point my last year at Berkeley was just fundamentals, just
1: mm-hmm.
0: all day in the practice room taking triads major triad, you know, all your, four triads, they're all 12 keys, and then <laughs> seventh, seventh chords, and I still. you still go back to it. Absolutely. You still go back to it, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. If if we rewrote the proficiency menus, you know, the levels one through eight sheets, if we rewrote them, in my opinion, to indicate really like kind of what we're prioritizing here, (laughs) I would make modes of the major scale, modes of melodic minor, modes of harmonic minor, you know, very big. Like this is a big topic, and I'd make triads category three, and levels one and two really huge, because close voiced triads up and down the guitar and across, and I'd make the arpeggios really big. For uh, triads from any chord tone, so I think that's levels one and two, and you know when it becomes two octaves, it's sort of a not that complicated of an extension, but if you get one octave together, you could play a lot of magical stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and those things should be really big because out in the world of music, I noticed that, uh, 90% of the stuff involved the major scale modes. Right. In a way, I mean, you know, stylistically we could say, yes, that's uh, only true up to a certain point. But if you're just thinking in a broad stroke way across a lot of different stylistic situations you in you're in, you can adapt that material to everything but it's kind of a platform of thinking as well as a system on the guitar. Right. And um, so I took a couple of lessons and a guy showed me the modes of the major scale mm-hmm. and I spent, I just had now something to do with this. It, it now gave me a thing of the fretboard. It was across all six strings. It was like an enormous leap. Mm-hmm which was going to keep me busy for frankly speaking uh not that long 15 years mm-hmm. of daily practice and then I went and studied with this guy Mike Santiago who took me through the Sandoli method which if you studied with Sandoli this is not what he taught you he brought you down an incredible wormhole which I didn't have the opportunity to do
0: which Dennis or the uh, or the uh, brother um
2: no uh, so uh with Dennis. With Dennis. Maybe, maybe
0: explain, maybe talk a little bit about the Sandolis, Philadelphia, and John Coltrane, and Tar-Lore, <laughs> which is a brilliant, brilliant book.
2: Yeah, which I don't have, but Ooh, um,
0: I can so share, I can.
2: I would love that.
0: I can hip you to it.
2: <laughs> Thanks. So uh, what I know about Sandoli, and maybe you can uh, share some things about this. So, you know, we're talking about, I only know about Dennis. We're talking about a master teacher, like a He's like the, uh, uh, you know, we have people like Charlie Benakis and like this. So Sandoli was this guy. Now, what I was told (laughs) was that he had um, this, you know, incredible system in which you would um, uh, write. And uh, well, this is what Mike took me through. So if you could imagine the amount of data that would basically be kind of almost the equivalent of two to three times the eight levels of Berkeley proficiency. So imagine that data that's eight levels Mm -hmm. multiply it at least twice in scope. Okay. And imagine that's a daily thing you're going to go through. Mm. Okay. You're going to practice the data every day, all of it. And you're going to be in a key for a month, a tonal center of a tonic note so you know if november is d natural then we're going to do everything in d natural if you're in the key of uh of a scale of course you have all the chords you have all the arpeggios and you're doing everything you're doing all this stuff and then you're also writing and he has you write in different modes he has you write in all kinds of different frameworks and of course Dennis was a polytonal guy. He was way into polytonal, you know, when Train went to him and said, Hey, what do I do now? You know, I'm bored. I don't know what to do next. He said polytonal scales and polytonal triads. That's basically his answer was like bitonal, tritonal, quadratonal scales and triads. Start there, then stack the triads, see what you get. And um, of course on guitar, we can't do those things like Richie Byrack would do with Liebman where he would stack four triads, you know, on top of each other. Like F sharp major, F minor, you know, right? A minor and D flat, you know, augmented. And uh, you can't hear that stuff necessarily so easily on guitar. So we do this reductionist version of it as chords. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) But Mike took me through this thing. And we spent a month on a note, a month on a tone, a Tonic Center, and we did all the data. It basically took me, I think about 15 hours a day just to work through the data, uh, repeating everything uh, one time. So two repeats, right? And uh, Mike was great. Uh, Consider this. We're at the new school. It's 1985. (laughs) The lessons were $25 an hour. And he was a sweet guy, sweet guy. And he said, He said, man, you got a lot of stuff together. It's really cool. I can see the gaps you have. So we're going to fill those in. But the way this is going to work is we can't pull everything up to where you are. We have to take everything down to where your gaps are. We're going back to the lowest level that you can think at. It's going to be really difficult for you. So you're going to have to kind of take some time off maybe. So I quit my gigs and I said to my wife look i have to do this so i'm kind of going to disappear each day into the room and um you're not going to see me all day and i'm going to do this work and mike had two rules which apparently were dennis's rules he said if you ever come back to a lesson without everything completed for that week you quit on the spot and if you cancel a lesson you quit he said there was a blizzard in philly (laughs) It took four hours for Mike to go like 15 blocks. He got to the lesson with Dennis and Dennis said, you're late. You know, he's walking down the hall, like he you know, turned his back on him. You're late. You know, he opens the door for him. You know, that was Dennis. Like if you quit in the snowstorm, he's like, well, then you're done. But it was a snowstorm. It's like, yeah, too bad. You want to do this or don't you? You know, that was kind of the message, right? So Mike said, you know, are you okay with those rules? I was like, absolutely. That's great. Yeah, you know, it was no That's question. Easy. Well, yeah, I wasn't going to, I had already done that though. You know, back when I was doing my two note exercise, I would expand it to three or I'd play one octave of a G major scale in mode seven, which of course every guitar player thinks is mode one. Um, I'd give myself a test every seven days, end of the week. Mm -hmm. I'd start on Sunday. I'd give myself a test on Saturday. And now think about this, you know, if I failed the test, the, the consequences were grave, but I'm given the test. <laughs> so how many guys we got up there? <laughs> that was the question. <laughs> you know, there's a guy studying and there's a guy bearing down on him. you know? Right. And yeah. I just think that's, I, I haven't met a person who achieved anything significant that didn't have that.
1: You know, when you say that, and you're talking about, you know, your dedication at learning the instrument comprehensively and the discipline that you developed as a young kid, there's something that you also talk about in your pedagogy that I think is related. And it's, you call it the super fundamentals. Yeah. Can you talk about what those are for a minute and how they coincide with like a comprehensive knowledge of the instrument and yet going back to something that you call super fundamentals every day and maybe every minute when you're practicing?
2: So there's a couple of things that uh, I really focus on in this area I call super fundamentals. So why I call them super fundamentals is I explain to the students, I say, well, generally speaking, if you go pretty much anywhere, when music is taught they start at a certain level that they believe is irreducible, which means there's all these understandings that are kind of fundamental that they automatically can't imagine that you don't have. Like everybody knows what low and high is, right? Everybody knows what slow and fast is. You know, everybody knows what long and short is, you know, durations. And you know, everybody knows what loud and soft is and dense and sparse also. And the fact is nobody knows that stuff. <laughs> I mean, everyone is just like, huh? So we're unconsciously given this assumption like, hey, we're ready to go now. We're gonna work with building chords and you don't even know like the difference between low or high, right? Because you don't tune into that. So uh, one of the things that's in the super fundamentals is the seven parameters of sound. And those are those things like duration, register, Dynamics, um, uh, envelope, timbre, velocity, density. Uh, what did I leave out? Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I always do this. oh this
1: is a moment that your students are going to latch yeah, on to here. Duration. Yep. Register <laughs> velocity right <laughs> dynamics.
2: dynamics velocity, anyways, you got it, but um so duration i 'll ask them a question um, when you play uh, you know, if you were to record yourself but not be aware of it, what are the mean average durations that you use? These are note values, you know uh, what ones do you tend to use, what ones do you never use, or rarely do you use them across the range of like Whole notes or, you know, whole notes tied to half notes. Do you use half notes? And then, how about the rests? Do you sense that rests are actually counted, like they're a they're a they're a length of duration? Are you aware of what a three beat rest feels like? How about three beats in the sixteenth or, you know, three beats in a quarter? You could call it right, and Mm -hmm. and. um, you know are you aware of that stuff as you play or are you not and then the one that's the real killer is register um, i'll say how many registers do you perceive on your instrument and they often say i've never thought about it hmm. so then maybe when we think about it they'll say well, well there's two there's this low and then there's high but there's more than that obviously so then we if we can get them to refine it into three and four registers the next question is do you play the same things in every register? And invariably the answer is no, of course not. I can't put that there. That goes there. This goes here. And it's like, not really. As an orchestrator, you should be able to play anything in any register and think about why that works that way or what, what its effect is. Right. Dynamics. You know, we have the card with I think it's seven or eight dynamic levels that are you know classically written as you know dynamic markings in music and um, we ask people just to find their 10 we'll call that the top you know which is the on the guitar is the loudest that you can physically get energy into the string at any volume level if you're playing electric you know it will accept no more energy and then your one is the quietest you can play and your five is right in the middle and I you know, always tell them, we have to be able to control those. We have to be able to play everything as a five, mm-hmm. no matter what it is. So you're playing single notes up high, then you play single notes down low, and then you play a two note dyad, and then you play a triad and a, and a larger chord, they should all be the same volume. And can you drop that down and make that all the same volume? Can you put it back up here? And, you know, and I tell them the story of being in the studio and I hated the way that, when I worked in the studio for people, I hated the way they compressed and limited guitars in the 80s. Just couldn't stand it. You know, great sound coming out of the amp, going to control. And it's like, God, what happened, right? So I convinced a couple engineers, one of them was Joe Furla, to put me straight into the tape machine, which is not a move they like to make. It means you bypass everything. Your volume is the volume. And the way you do that is you show them that when you play, you can push the meter to zero every time. Everything you play goes there. It just goes off. It doesn't go. er, It just goes to like just around zero. This is back when they had needle meters, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) So once you could do that, they said, yeah, you're good to go. The drummers could do that. Steve Gadd could do that. People could do that. Play the whole track full of energy comes down. You know, you think you're hearing dynamics. In the studio, they're playing one dynamic level. So anyways... um, so we look at these things and then we look at like, what do you associate with like low and mid and high? You know, what are the associations unconsciously? Mm. You know, what, are the, what, what happens with rhythms? Are whole notes heavy and eighth notes light? Is that true? And it's sort of true, you know, like the faster subdivisions are kind of lighter, they fly. And the lower ones are like earthy and kind of grounding. And, And once you open up these realizations about those parameters, you start realizing that as you're sculpting both sound and uh, the shape and size of the note, envelope, um, you're really getting into what makes the music actually have depth and power. Like envelope, right? Mm -hmm. So you ask any woodwind player, any wind player about envelope, and they say, well, there's an attack. I have to attack the note a certain way. I'm going to sustain it. It's gonna decay if I want, and then I'm gonna release the note. And all the guitar players only think about attack and sustain, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean, that I've encountered. They never think about decay. Decay is something that they battle instead of something that they work with. And then how do you release the note? They go, what do you mean release the note? (laughs) It's like, yeah, you have to end the thing. You have to release it. What are you doing? I, I never thought about it. So once you tune into these things, right, it opens up this world That is the world of sound.
0: You know, that's really in that, in our ear training workshop, Wayne Krantz totally talked about that.
2: Yep, I remember. (laughs) And
0: that's wonderful. I mean, I think these things are so, I mean, they are, they're critical. And um, so thank you for, you know, presenting those and making students aware of that because, you know, so much of it is like I press down strings and I'm playing the guitar or, you know, whatever right. or I press down, you know? And so I, I play the piano, I play the guitar, I play the drums, I have sticks and I hit things.
1: Exactly. exactly.
2: <laughs> we would do this thing with drummers uh, where they had to play, they had to play um, fast and quiet. I do this with guitar players. You have to play as fast as you can, as quietly as you can. So you have to play as fat, you have to sustain fast playing at a one dynamic level. And you, you, know, you, take a, you take a saxophone player and you have them do this and they literally um, can't until they've gone to that level where the teacher shows them you know, how you do that, like how you control the system. You're not a prisoner of a certain uh, tendency of the instrument or whatever, You know, like it's not a, it, it is in a way uh, all technique based, yeah? I mean, ultimately first you have to have the awareness And the beautiful thing is if you are starting to tune into like how you work with dynamics and how you work with register and how you work with timbre and attack uh, timbre and envelope and timbre is a different thing that has a lot of techniques and you're thinking about register and duration, you know, and then velocity and density have some interesting components to them. Uh, like harmonic density, rhythmic density. Anyways, when you do this, at any level that the person is operating at at that moment in their development, they can utilize these parameters and their music sounds really beautifully formed. Like anything they're playing will sound super great, like deep, like wow. You know. I mean, that's what happened to me as a kid, is I actually got my orientation was towards this naturally. So when I could only play a really small amount of things that I could comprehend, I played them so well that people assumed automatically, oh, this guy probably can play everything. And I would get called to do these things. I was like, I can't do that. They'd be like, what are you talking about? You sounded great the other night. And then I was like, you know, yikes. So I was always chasing data, but I had the parameters um, ahead of my data, like my... Mm -hmm. And when I worked with horn players, which I worked with all my life, I feel like I totally understand, you know, we, you know, basically I have like air in the notes, you know, so the whole thing, intonation is not a point, it's a zone, you know, you get to, you know, you talk to a tenor player about intonation. That's not a point. It's mm-hmm. not like a piano key. It's a, it's an area.
0: You know, David, it's so interesting that you brought that up because that was kind of, I thought when I was thinking about us talking today, you know, sometimes when you hear somebody like Albert King is actually my favorite mm-hmm. blues guitarist mm-hmm. and singer, I could hear him, listen to him sing all day. Yep. Me too. And the next day and the next day, and the next day, and I want to hear want to keep going. Yep. Or or Buddy Guy or something. I always felt like those guys, you know, their sense of that note, talking about the intonation, they could have a, you know, a, cardboard, you know, like paper towel roll with a rubber band on it. That's doesn't, right. You know, you could just take the guitar and just ran. It doesn't have to be in tune for right. them to hit that note. And it, I always feel like it's coming from almost like their solar plexus, like it's coming from this like really primal place of this note. But I was thinking about y- that, about you too, in terms of, you know, playing the slide. Yes. Right? Yep. You... you it is more like a, a horn experience in that way. Absolutely. You know, but anyway, I, that's. I'm glad you brought that up because that was exactly the thought in my head, and and I'm glad to.
2: Albert King. into was, it. Albert King was also probably my favorite, the one I grabbed onto, and of course, he was a steel guitar player when he was a, in his in his early days of playing guitar, he played lap steel before he played, uh, Freddie guitar. Um, But the brass players are the ones that really understand that there's room on either side of a given pitch. And you can sort of, what they call, fatten it out. You know, you can buzz the note out. So the note takes up more space than you think, frequency-wise. It's all about like overtones, and you know, they're dealing with a column of air that's basically folded up in a horn. If you extended it out, it'd be like 10 feet long. And so I just think about that. I think about the string Uh, with the slide is very cool because it vibrates on both sides you just don't hear this side unless you amplify it so you hear the side that's on the pickup so i i never mute on the back side of the slide so i'm actually hearing uh both sides right but Mm -hmm. only i can hear it and um i mean slide is weird you know it drives me nuts about as much as it thrills me but uh, but i'm committed to it and um uh, but getting back to the other thing, so there's the seven parameters of sound which, you know, apply to natural sound. So if my encouragement to a student is like, start listening to things and, and check out parameters, you know, like, uh, I mean, I used to, used to do stuff too when I had my office where Thaddeus' office is and it faced Boylston. If I was in there on a day where there wasn't like a lot of street traffic right under the window, but it was rush hour, I would open the window and we would listen to the highway I say, let's take five minutes to close your eyes and listen to the highway. I want you to pick out all the melodies that are in the white noise and sing them when you hear them. And there's like five of them, and they 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 stack up like a range. There's one that's down like on the low sixth string of the guitar, and there'll be a couple in the middle. And when you really listen, you hear them, and they're going depending on the how many cars and how fast they're going. You hear them doing different things, and people would say, "I never knew that was in there." And it's like, "Yep." Wait till you start listening to the building you're in or, you know, different times of day or whatever. And then it's just a thing of frequencies. I also hit people to frequencies. You know, you ask a student, uh, what's the frequency of a low E string in concert tuning? Uh, they often don't know, it's 82.84 cycles. It would really pay to know that. Because one of the reasons why it's mind blowing is that if this is 82, That means that by the time you're up here on this area of the fretboard, you haven't cleared a thousand cycles yet. So where does that put you in the orchestra? You're at the bottom. Like everything you play is under a thousand cycles. This is not high. That's not low. You know, it's at the lower end. It's a bass clef instrument, but that idea like, wow, these notes are really high. It's like violin, you know, can go at least an octave higher. That's high. Like i play sometimes with these, I had to do things in the studio where the, I had to play the slide up over the pickups to match where the violin was, like play lines, you know, complicated melodies that the violin is just nailing. And they're, they're here, right. you know, right? And that sounds high. Now you're talking high, right? Cause now we're in the, the teens. We're heading up towards 2,000 cycles. Oh,
0: for the podcast, you should. we should note that you're pointing up in your neck pickup area. <laughs> for those <That's> right. listening. <laughs> or in between, yes. In between. Yeah. In between, yeah. yes. Look at yes. that.
2: You know, so this stuff is up here. Let's see if I can do this without my, yeah. Right, so it's up there instead of down here, right? This is not really that high. Right? So it's a kind of a compressed range, you know. Um, So the other thing that's in super fundamentals that I'm always harping on is that, you know, it's important to realize that music, music that we organize as pitch... Pitched music is just intervals of pitch, intervals of time. I mean, if you wanted to boil it down to something you could put on a three by five card, that's kind of what we're looking at. So, intervals of time comes back to durations, right? Subdivisions that you use. Do you are you comfortable with them? You know, um, can you play whole notes? Do you ever play a? You know, I say to a student, do you ever play a mode in whole notes at fifty on the metronome? you know, which we used to call the guitar player's graveyard because they die down there, <laughs> <laughs> right? Because they can't slow down, you know, and then I'll tell them like, well, you know, Ben Monder puts the metronome at 10. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to zone in like the Tuck story, you know, like I'm sure he wasn't going ding, 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 you know, in the hotel room he's right. going like, <laughs> just letting it, you know, really register in his body. But the other thing we, we deal with then is intervals of pitch right? Because the rhythms we've already talked about. So the intervals of pitch, I get the students uh, able to use dyads. So we, you know, we look at all the dyads in a scale, like we'll take a key and we'll harmonize it in seconds, thirds, fourths, fifths, sixth, sevenths, then we'll do it again, ninths through fourteenths. And they're playing all the just tonal stuff, but they're using dyads. And you can paint everything with dyads, basically. And they're very mobile and they're the beginning of counterpoint and they're the core of harmony. And then, uh, you know, for every key, there's five notes not being used of the you know, seven out of 12. And the moment you start to put those other notes, it's magical what happens,
0: you know?
1: Right. Because when you're using the dyads, you're using them as they are. And then you're thinking of them also as upper structures to every in the anything. scale, yep. and then yep. those other five notes could be polytonal, mm-hmm. but they could also be alterations of chords, right? Yeah,
2: I want I want students to be able to do something like this, where, you know, if you took D and E, you know, this major second, which they have to be able to play anywhere that it exists. But, you know, we say, okay, uh, we ask them to be uniform, name them low to high every time, so we are keeping track of them. Uh, relate these as chord tones if the root is e they say flat seven one i say okay now it's e flat seven flat nine now it's a eleven five now it's f thirteen seven right and we just want them to be able to do it and eventually do it fast and then of course once they know okay if this was F root this is thirteen and seven natural seven yeah what's the most likely candidate for this chord? And then that gets interesting because you might tend to say, oh, it's an F major seven, but it could also be an F minor major seven, you know, like it's still pretty open. And I want them to start to think about what's called sort of common use. So if you got into a thing where this was, uh, let me see if I can get this. um, uh, Let's say that, uh, Yeah, let's say that the, uh, the root is C-sharp, so you have flat 9, sharp 9. So you're going to be tempted right away to say the most common thing that this is, is a C-sharp altered dominant. right? Right. But it could also be flat 9 and flat 3, you know, which applies to two minor chords in the major scale and a host of other things, you know. uh, Minus and flat five as a tension, you know, blah, blah, blah. So it gets them thinking it's overwhelming at first because it takes quite a while to get that in your mind. But I show them on guitar, we're kind of recyclers. So any structure has at least 12 applications. If you're talking about chords and, you know, applications like that.
1: You know, Ian, um, I think that, What Dave was talking about, it reminds me of a question that you generally ask um, because there's so much here, right? You know, it sounds like you're starting with fundamentals. It sounds like, you know, when you're a student, you come in and you think these are the basics, and then you realize so quickly that the basics become these giant concepts, and it's hard to know um, what to ask of your teachers. And so um, what's on your mind in that way? Yeah, so this is a question I've been posing to a lot of our Coffee Talk um, guests, (laughs) which is, um, and this applies to you also in terms of what you were talking about, both as a student, and then coming here as a teacher, like, if there's an aspect of being a student of music that you could focus on, that you might not even realize you need to focus on it. Like, what's the thing that students should be asked, like, the question that they should ask that they don't yet know to ask?
2: Hmm. That's a great question.
1: <clears throat> that has
2: over the years for me, a lot of a wide variety of answers that, you know, I've cycled through because I've noticed, um, I mean, before I give my answer, I want to just say that like in the 18 years so far that I've been at Berkeley, I've watched about three major sort of sea changes in the student bodies comprehensive like way that they think about the world and their their world their life and it's really changed like when I joined I was 44 and my students were 20 you know average age 20 right so we still shared a lot of reference points that were in the past you know like lineage style reference points so I could reference something and they would they would know what it was and we could relate that to something we were working on, we would have a a reference point, like an example to demonstrate. And then that changed and those are gone. And it changed again. And now like we're in two different universes. So the question that I would have posed for that first group would not be the question I would pose for this, this current group. But there's a couple of questions that I think are critical for every group and will be for the next Forever. And the two questions are this. If I ask a person who's their favorite guitar player (laughs) and their answer is any other name but their own, I say, what are you thinking about? How is it possible it's not you? Like, what are you doing? And I say to them, do you know how hard you're going to work to actually get this together? Are you doing that for them? Really? Really, in 15 years, you're still gonna get up and think, oh, John Mayer is my guy. If it's not you, you need to look at that like immediately and deeply because it should only always be you first. You can love everybody. I literally, I listen to people, I listen to the people on this coffee talk and I sit there and I go, I will never be able to do that. (laughs) That is magnificent on every level. It blows my mind, but I still have to get up every day and go, well, the reason why I'm doing this here, you know, working hard is because I'm, you know, trying to do this for me. Like, I started out because I got excited. And I'm, what I'm not necessarily talking about, though, is self-expression. I'm talking about kind of self-commitment. Commitment to a, a motive that's very deep, that will push through everything. It doesn't care if I'm happy or sad or hungry or tired or okay or things are stressful or things, you know, I've got sand in my coffee or, you know, we're doing okay, right? I mean, it's pushed through everything. So that's my first question to students is like, um, and then I say to them, I say, you, you need to really think about making yourself, you know, do what you gotta do to make yourself your favorite guitar player. Because at some point, this is gonna weed you out. This process of uh, difficulty is gonna just thresh you. Um, but if you're your favorite guitar player, it's, not, it's just gonna be a bump. It's not gonna be a big deal. As a matter of fact, it's gonna be a, it's gonna be a, 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 a good uh, experience getting threshed is not necessarily bad. And the other question that I ask everybody, (laughs) so we have all this proficiency material, which basically, if you look at it, is uh, layouts of scales, layouts of arpeggios, you know, fingerings for things, patterns, and, and we like to even think there's probably more successful fingerings, you know, not just necessarily one, but, you know, start with ones, build the hand In strength, and then you can switch to others or whatever. There's a bunch of systems, but the data tends to patternistically go on the fretboard a certain way. And I like to say that the fretboard is smarter. It shows you where everything is. Now, I know there's a handful of systems, but the ones that we have in the Berkeley website, right? Are very specific. You know, we'd like the students to have seven modes for seven notes and all that cool stuff. So if I encounter a student, which is virtually everybody that I see does not do this. They, 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 they don't do this. They treat it like it's this optional thing. The question I have for them is, if you are not going to use this system, this data represents a system of organizing all the stuff you're gonna to need to play on this instrument. If you're not gonna use this system, show me please the system you're replacing it with. And to this day, probably 5,000 students in 50 years, I've never seen a system replace that system. They have some bits and pieces of it, and then they tell you the story like, yeah, but I do this with it. <laughs> and you're just like, <laughs> I'm sorry, man. I, I don't want to mistreat you. You're a beautiful human being, but, uh, you know.
0: David, that reminds me of <laughs> one of my early years teaching at Berkeley. <laughs> Might have been, you know, like my first or second semester, a student came in, you know, and you want to get to know I'm like, Hey, you know, what do you know? Do you, do you know any, do you know any of your major scale fingers? And the student said, well, I have my theory down. And I'm like, okay, great. <laughs> yeah. Let me hear a major scale and he plays <coughs> something that's like a mishmash, half major, half minor. And he got done. I was like, that's an interesting theory. <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, oh, exactly. Oh, Um beautiful. You know, I wanted to ask a question about adaptation, like so much of what always comes up, right, is how do you adapt? Like, what can you do to build constant things that kind of secure you as things change around you? Mm -hmm. And I think you've answered a lot of that, right, in in what you've discussed. And I'm wondering if um, there are moments throughout your long career that has taken many different paths where you were confronted with a situation where like you had to adapt on the spot. And like, if you could share one or two of those moments and like what it taught you. Gosh.
2: Um, I mean, yikes. Uh, On a certain level, it was, I mean, it was virtually constant Mm
0: -hmm.
2: because for me, I was forcing something, you know, which really looking back, I I'm almost embarrassed about it. So I had my whatever, you know, passion for this uh, idea I have for the guitar. But I mean, I was, man, this is really weird to describe. I was like a missionary and the guitar was my holy book, you know, but specifically like my version of playing, I forced it into every kind of music. So there's adaptation and, and then there's, you know, selling, sort of selling people on it. Um, I'll give you an example of the the latter. So at one point uh, in New York, um, John Cale, who was one of the founders of the Velvet Underground, and you know, John Cale was a brilliant, is a brilliant uh, character in music, and um, you know, he's a viola player, classically trained, and uh, he was, a, he he wrote some really incredibly progressive avant-garde music but of course you know the the music industry being what it is he he had uh, many things going on at one time so some of them that you would see uh, that were prominent and some you didn't like he wrote music for theater and he wrote pop records and so he was a more open-minded and kind of pushing the pushing against the the industry is very sort of closed to a lot of those things so he was kind of a cool guy and and he picked me up into his stable. He used to uh, refer to uh, every time you would get a new person in the stable, he would call them his secret weapon. So for a little while I was his secret weapon. And what that meant was he was counting on the new secret weapon to throw some kind of clog into the machine, you know, as we're making these records. And so I remember this vividly, uh, you know, you're doing a overdub. I'm doing an overdub. And so it's just him and the engineer and the assistant, but I'm in the room, not in the, a lot of times you do dubs in the control room, but I'm standing out in front of the glass in this giant studio in New York. I think it was Clinton. And uh, yeah, it looks like you're on trial. <laughs> you <know? laughs> and uh, <laughs> He says, "Okay, uh, Charles." Oh, you know, we're gonna take. We're gonna roll the take. Uh, you know, blah 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 blah. This tune, this, and there and, and I do this thing. I decide I'm gonna do a particular approach to this tune. And when we finish the take, there's this pause, that horrible pause where no one says anything, and you can see people talking. They're like, and uh, then the mic comes on, and he goes, um, uh, "That was a." V- very interesting, ruminating guitar part. Explain, he says, which, you know, this is beautiful because now he's opening it up with dialogue. I said, well, this song, the story is such and such about this person such and such in this situation. And I felt that what it was lacking so far was the understory the backstory of that person the shadow story that no one wants to find out like everyone's hiding including the character but we're going to tell that story wordlessly through the music and he sat back and he got this smile on his face and he says well done (laughs) and i heard this song on the radio over the years like in restaurants and stuff, and they mix that thing up like really high. You know, and usually they don't do that. Usually you you do parts on a record and they mix them down. You're usually under the drums, you know, and that's where it's going to go, you know. Um, By the way, just for the record, I would say sometimes in sessions, I would say, They'd say, Come up with something. I'd say, Okay, well, when I come up with something, I'm going to tell you where to mix it because I'm coming up with a part that has to live in a certain place in this music. That's, I'm an orchestrator. That's what I'm thinking about. So if I give this to you and you bury it, then it's not going to function right. Mm. So you got to tell, you got to promise me you're going to mix it where I tell you to mix it. Right. And they would look at me like, What? You're not supposed to say <laughs> stuff like that. And it's just <laughs> like, it's like, you know. Sorry, dude, that's how we think. You know, because Mm -hmm. everybody thinks like that. Every band leader thinks like that. Mm -hmm. Everyone who's ever arranged their music for their ensemble. I mean, right? It's like orchestration is, you're not just thinking about you or that instrument, you're thinking about the whole picture. Um, Adaptation. I mean, adaptation is kind of endless. Good Lord.
1: Well, do you think, like, going along with what you said, it made me think that a lot of our students really want that kind of career that you've had in the sense that you've played in many different styles of music. Like you've played on right. pop records and you've done big tours and you've been a band leader and you've played in classical music and jazz and modern improvisation and also gospel and blues and in movies. Yeah. yeah. And you know, what, what do you think, it was about you and your playing and the way you approach things that allowed for that. Like, can you put your finger on that? Like what allowed you to be able to be who you are and be distinctive and yet be a part of all of those really different projects from like, you know, Philip glass to Paul Simon and John Hyatt to your own trios. Well,
2: um, it's interesting that you asked this question. So, um, The answer, in in fact, about what has already happened is, you know, so the the fact of what actually took place is um, very consciously this thing that I try to um, suggest is the way to think about music to my students, which is that I understand my materials really well. And then I understand that all music that you're hearing uses the same materials so it might not use all of the materials like they use certain things but it's not an unending amount of data that's making up all these you know the the data change is not that significant from one musical type or whatever to another what is involved there is the strategy of how it's organized which means like certain things are not used and certain things are not done and certain things tend to be done or there's things that become formulaically part of the music like uh, they're iconic aspects of the music and you know you have to know that like I worked for producers who would say hey look this is a country tune but it's not like Nashville in 1980 this is like Bakersfield California in 1955 do you know what I'm talking about and you had to know what they were talking about You had to know what Buck Owens guitar player actually did in Bakersfield on those records. And it is actually a, what notes were muted? What notes rang? Where did they put the chords? How did they play a phrase? What was done and what wasn't done? So you had to be a student, like country music, you have to be a student of like six different, at least regional developments. You know, the blues multiply that by 10, you know, like literally you gotta go deep. And so I would do that. I do, I would just like, I would listen, not play, just listen. So that I could tell the difference, like we've talked about this with being able to recognize composers and why, you know? Why is that Skip James and not Book White? And why is that Book of White and not Charlie Patton? Like what, who came before who? That's something that I really rail against with my students. They have like this time machine like they think that somebody that's alive now that's their age or five years older, you know, started something that they didn't, they inherited. And I say, do, do you know what the lineage of this is? And they go, no. And then they listen to somebody from 40 years ago who was like originator of this or 60 or 80. And they'll still say, how did they get that from him? <laughs> from the guy alive now. And it's like, dude, we don't have a time machine. Like this is a lineage. <laughs> You know, you got to get it in the right order. But there's almost no curiosity for this, Um, even as mind-blowing as it can be. uh, And I'm not pushing a particular style over any other, but I'll play for young guitar players Mm -hmm. who are leaning towards jazz-oriented music. I'll play McLaughlin's first record that he made when he was 26, Extrapolation. Mm -hmm. And there's a couple of tunes on there that are about as avant-garde as it gets before you just blow it up and go free. Mm -hmm. And they can't believe the thing was made in 67. Right. And that Derek Bailey and and John were actually hanging out playing together. And at that point, they were this close. And it was going to go like this. Into two completely different worlds almost, but they shared exactly the same interests and influences at one point. But when you hear this record. Extrapolation it sounds like it could be made tomorrow. Right. And it's not to say that we haven't come up with all kinds of beautiful, you know, things. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is That you have to know that that happened in 67 right alongside Hendrix. And right alongside, you know, Sly Stone and right alongside Miles, you know, electric period and right alongside this and right alongside that. You have to know that part of the reason that happened was because, you know, America was exploding and, you know, we have to get into a little backdrop of history, blah, blah, blah.
0: Well, you know, David, I often think about that too, is that especially with we're dealing with young musicians who are just forming and they're coming from a pop culture kind of experience of music, you know, like they say, well, I like, you know, grunge rock or I like, you know, that those labels in a sense are things that have been prepackaged for them. Absolutely. And so I think that's sort of that journey of saying no, but you're real musicians. Right. You're here. And so real musicians. Right. Listen, you know, I had a, a student who brought in, um, Oh, I think it was, we were talking about goodbye, pork by hat. And I played him Joni Mitchell. Right. And, and then he said, Oh, who's that lady? You know? And I said, okay, check this out. And then he just listened to the song and I said, but you know, that's part people would make me, you know, maybe the, but today it's not a thing to make a whole, story with a album, but you you know, do your, you're a real musician. Right. She's a real musician and these are heavy cats and, and go back and experience it the way that the artists, you know, and, and of course he did. And he was like, wow, that was, that was an incredible experience. But I think coming as a young person from kind of a pop music or the way the pop culture is taught to consume music we're breaking through that barrier and, and, and saying, no, you're cut from a different cloth here. (laughs) Yes, exactly.
2: But you know, the industry alone has changed, I mean, five times in my estimation. I mean, there's been four significant technology changes. You know, when I first started to make records for other people, it was tape, 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 you know, record mix master. Then it became tape, tape, digital, Then it became tape, digital, digital. You know, ADD, right? The original ADD. And then it became DDD, right? And uh, the other thing I'll say, I say this to students all the time, the internet is not a library. Because if you don't know what you're looking for or you just want to find something you don't even know exists, you can't do it easily on the web. Because the web is all search-based. It's all algorithms pushing at you things they think are related, whoever they are. Whereas I say, if you walk into the library two times a week and you just walk down an aisle, stop, turn, look down, look at the books, go to the scores, close your eyes, reach up, pull one, take it home, open it, play it, read it, just mess with it. You do that twice a week. You know, you go there, you pull. I mean, I don't know about listening. Listening is a little different. Because you could go to, for example, Berkeley. Stangat's library has the streaming audio libraries. You could go into the Naxos. You go in the Smithsonian World Music Library and just go, oh, what does music in Cameroon sound like? And then there's all this stuff. And you go like, well, what's this pop music? It's called um, bicuzzi, you know. So, oh, you know, right? And then you hear this kind of folkloric form of Bakutsi, and, <laughs> and then you realize there was this guy named uh, Theodore... Ikame, whose stage name was Zanzibar, formed this group called the Burnt Heads, the Tête Roulet. And he did like, he did like a punk version, you know, like this band was the punk version of this bakutsi dance music, which was this really lyrical, acoustic, folkloric music, you know. And these guys come out, they, are, they painted themselves, and they, you know, they wore like whacked out clothes, and they played loud, and it is Unreal what it did to this music, you know, it just exploded and when you watch them play they're dancing singing five-part harmony and playing the most unbelievably difficult Beautiful woven guitar things that come from this folkloric balafon music And they were hated when they came out all the old the old guard went like that's not this music and they're like That's this music now (laughs) You know it changed everything right? So how would I find out about this? Well, I would go to my local record store and there would be these really committed like guys and gals that ran the record store. And you'd be thumbing through, which means, you know, you could find stuff, right, that you weren't looking for. Oh, I'm going to look for Neil Young record, but, oh, look at this. I found this, you know, other thing, Albert King or whatever. I mean, this is how Pat Metheny found Ornette Coleman. He was in a Woolworths. Thumbing through records, he went, what is this? Took it home and it blew his mind, right? So he added that into the mix. It didn't mean like, you know, all, all of a sudden I'm going to go that direction, right? But anyways, you know, I'd be thumbing through and I would pull a couple of things and I could go up to the desk and I could say, can I hear some of this? And they'd go, sure. And then they would say, oh, what are you looking for? I don't know. You know, I'm just trying to find something. Well, check this out. Check this out. Check this out. Have you ever heard of this? Have you ever heard of this? I mean, these guys, between them and my brother... I mean, I already knew that the world was this giant web of lineages that I didn't even, I wasn't even going to hear some of that music for another 10 or 15 years. Mm. Yeah. You know, but then I was able to do that. So I would go to the Lincoln Center Library. I lived in, you know, Hell's Kitchen. When I moved to New York, I lived on 54th and 10th. Um, People don't believe this. I moved there in 79. My apartment was $87 a month. Four blocks from Rock Center. And um, i would go up to the Lincoln Center Library and you couldn't take anything out, but you could sit and listen all day. And like me and Peter Herbert or Schooley Sverson, we would get together afterwards at a cafe and we'd say, what did you see? what did you listen? What'd you read? Mm-hmm. Somebody would say, oh, i read this biography on Veyburn. You know, and I'd go, Veyburn, who's Veyburn, you know? Oh, that's one of the mm-hmm. students of Schoenberg, you know? Six months later, I'm sitting there with Schoolie going, hey, man, did you check out the, you know, the five pieces, you know, for string quartet, the five movements? He was like, no, what is that? You know, I'm telling him about Vapor, you know, because we would, you know, like we'd get excited and we'd share all this information. But because you could go in the library, you're going to stumble on things or somebody's going to say, um, they're not going to say, oh, well, if you like that. Maybe you like this. They're going to say, ah, don't bother with that. Check this out, you know, and they're going to just ping you off in another direction. Mm -hmm. That doesn't happen on the web very often. It just doesn't. So these people always get the same thing they always got um, if you're using only the web. So I've asked my students over the years, you know. Like John Zorn has these books called Arcana and they're writings on music by musicians. So he, you know, he gets his favorite people. It's a set group of people pretty much, but there's a lot of people, interesting people. And there's five volumes, you know, and the first 12 years I was at Berkeley after the first week of the semester, they were never on the shelf. Mm. And the last six years I've been at Berkeley, they are always on the shelf. Interesting. I can always get them. And that's pretty much says what shifted, in my opinion.
1: You know, as we're coming to the the end of the coffee in our current pots here, um, I was thinking, like, everything you've talked about, it sounds conceptual and it sounds, like, basic at first, right? And then the more you talk about it and you get excited about it, anyone who's listening could just be completely, like, overwhelmed, or at least we're hoping you know, aware of how deep and how much work it takes to build a sound that sounds free and expressive. There's a lot of hours there. There's 15 hours a day. There's long days at the library. There's a lot of fundamentals in practice. And I think in closing, do you have any advice for people who are feeling overwhelmed by that? Like, from just an emotional standpoint, from a... um, like a personal standpoint, like how do you, how did, how have you focused yourself? How have you overcome the times of doubt and difficulty and continuously pushed yourself to work on all the stuff that's necessary to do this?
2: Well, because I guess uh, uh, the only way I could describe that is it's not a fixed or simple target answer. It's sort of like this, Flux. Mm -hmm. So let me see if I can focus this a little bit. First of all, yeah, it's great if you think you know something, but it's more important that you can demonstrate something. So like, you know, the, the big problem becomes, you know, like the story that Cheryl, you shared about the student, you know, like, yeah, I know my theory. You know, it's like, well, show me. You know, I love that matrix. You know, like he says, I know Kung Fu and (laughs) <laughs> morpheus goes show me you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. you know and then of course it turns out he doesn't know kung fu at all um, so it's really important that you can demonstrate something rather than tell yourself you know it it would be preferable to me and this is what i did i let go of n- needing to know something so i'm always in beginner mind so somebody says uh, what do you know i said i don't know anything But then we pick our instruments up and we go to play and I can demonstrate a significant amount of things uh, and clearly like how to use them, you know, like my application is strong. So that means that I actually obviously do know something, but it's not important that I um, tell myself that. It's only important that I'm able to relate knowing something when I go to try to help a student know it. So I have to be able to explain or clarify something or give them various ways to connect to it. Uh, So that's improved a lot uh, since I've been here at Berkeley, for example, like how to present. Um, So uh, it was more important, demonstration was more important than me being able to go to bed at night going, hey, I think I know that. I don't know if that will make sense to some of the people that will watch this. Uh, The other thing is um, I never made it my mission to get rid of doubt. Mm. And I really, I'm going to say this, it sounds like a, a, it's one of those like, um, you know, new age, uh, uh, you know, faux spiritual, you know, catchphrases. But I made doubt my friend. So <laughs> doubt and discomfort in a reasonable measure became like, <clears throat> well, frankly speaking, something I sought out.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I just sought it out. I like... Uh, I don't run from it and I don't stand there hoping it'll avoid me. I, I go find it right. and I go find it not to fix it. I go find it to like live in it, you know, right. I mean, to be, to, I, I grew up, okay. So I grew up around, uh, all, exclusively, uh, visual artists. So there's painters in my family, <laughs> sculptors, you know, like people who draw, I do this also, you know, to whatever degree I'm kind of retrieving it. It was what I thought I was going to do for my life. I still think about everything through that paradigm. So, uh, for me, I would have to say that um, uh, doubt is like, um, it's like when you, you know, that's that's when you should get excited. (laughs) Like, you know difficulty it's like ooh, great you know oh this is ridiculous i can't even wrap my brain around this my hands aren't even functioning ah i love this you know it's just like finally because if i'm sitting there you know doing something that i mean frankly speaking when i reach a goal i get like sort of okay yeah i mean i have to watch that because i can throw away some magnificent things you know i just <laughs> this is ridiculous i don't like facebook that much but i'm on it you know and I was clicking away on some people that were, you know, friending me. And whenever I see somebody who's got a guitar in their picture, I, I let them join. And I reached 5,000 friends. And I thought, ah, I'm going to quit Facebook. <laughs> you know, I, I got 5,000 friends. We're done here. You know? But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, they're all musicians, pretty much. But um, anyways, uh, that's what I would say to a student is like, wait a minute. Discomfort should be exciting.
1: hmm
2: uh, severe discomfort should be exciting. <laughs> I mean, come on, like, you know, I, I go to the gym. I'm not going to body build, but I mean, I'm not getting anywhere if I'm there to avoid, at some point, even severe discomfort, mm-hmm. you know? Right. And, uh, you know, I don't have to go it doesn't have to be like self-punishment, but obviously if I'm going to want to sort of make progress, I'm going to have these thresholds where it's not going to be too comfortable, you know, whatever mm-hmm. that, you know, you know, you right. work out. And it's like, uh, if the fear of that is so great, then now I have a two problem problem. Right. One is the reality of discomfort is not accepted by me. And then I'm going to create some way of fleeing it. That's problem number two, you know? Right. So doubt and discomfort become your, your friend. And then I also tell students, you don't have to do this much today because you're going to be doing this. for This is a big mission you know, to acquire, say, control of the seven parameters. If you gave yourself 20 years to do that, they can't even think like that, right? But
1: mm-hmm.
2: it is going to be 20 years. Right. So I say do this much today. Just move right. forward that much but make sure it's every day, right? So you don't have to do 15 hours, do 10 minutes on this topic. Just move it forward that much. Mm -hmm. And tomorrow you move it forward that much. And if you take a day off, it doesn't necessarily move forward or maybe it does, it sinks into your brain or whatever, but so that's a sustainable way to go forward. And that's a commitment though, that actually I think terrifies people they think I yeah. have to do this every day. And this is going to take 20 years.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, my early on, I had a mentor who said, he looked at me and he goes, Look, the calendar pages, you know, like in the movies with the wind, they're just going to turn anyways. And if you're alive, 20 years is going to pass. You know, you could at that point be a master guitar player. <laughs> or well on <laughs> That's your way. Great. Or not, you know. Likely, God willing, you know, you're going to live and it's all going to be fine. And I just thought about that and I went, Oh, yeah. And then when I was in New York studying with a guy named Edgar Grana composer, he said, you want to think of, I was uh, 24. He said, you want to think about this? Like, what are you going to be doing when you're 80 mm. with you? And I hadn't thought that far ahead. And I remember going home and saying, what is a 40 year goal for me right now? What is a 30 year goal right, right now?
1: That's great. And I, I actually yeah. made
2: a goal. Uh, I made a goal that year. It was 84.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I made a goal that I thought was a 20-year goal. <laughs> and just this last two years, it started to come into, into sort of solidity.
1: Oh, that's great.
2: So I, was, I was off by almost 20. Ah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Um, so, Ian, any final thoughts from you? I don't know, man. I have to rethink my goals here. <laughs> no, you don't. Yeah. Well, you've got 20 years or 40 you're, years. You're okay, Ian. You're okay. Uh,
0: what you're about you, okay. Cheryl? Well, well, I just want to thank you, David, for sharing Thanks. some really deep stuff. And I'm definitely going to go back and listen. I think this is going to be a, a popular broadcast um, <laughs> <laughs> because there's there's a lot there. So thanks for taking the time to hang out thank with you. us and share your, you know, a lot of the incredibly deep things you think about. And thank of you course so your much. music all the time.
2: Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Thanks, Cheryl. Yeah, thanks, thank Kim. You. thanks, Kim. You're thanks. Kim. Thank you guys for all the hard work you're doing for this department and Kim, you know, for your, Leadership and Cheryl for your leadership and Ian, you are literally like keeping us <laughs> alive and moving. And then on top of it, we're in this extraordinary situation, you know, with this an unprecedented global pandemic, and we're literally sailing through. I mean, not sailing easily, obviously, but uh, carrying uh, our our department, carrying the division. I have to say. <laughs> and the division's carrying the school. I mean, thank you guys so much for this. Cause it's, it's unimaginable to me what you do on a daily basis to keep us moving. If we were at school, it would still be uh, grounds for great thanks. And, um, <laughs> but this is extraordinary. So.
1: Well, thank you for saying that. And thank you for, You know, reminding us of all the fundamental things, all the important things that bring us together, because it really is the heart of what we do in the guitar department is everything you described. It's our love for the instrument and each other and um, and working together to keep learning every day. So it was great to see everyone and um, to talk to everyone on Coffee Talk. You will find (laughs) Professor David Tronzo in the practice room or in the library. And um, we'll see you next time (laughs) on our next episode. So coffee cheers everybody.
2: Cheers. Cheers.
1: We'll see you soon.
2: (laughs) See you soon.